we're going to continue this morning in the book of Joshua. The series is called The Next Series. By the way, this is going to run right up to Easter. I think the week before Easter we'll switch off, and then we're going to be on other things. Um, So be looking forward to that. But we're in the middle of the book of Joshua. We've been studying this for a while now. And um, one of the things that this series is says next, you know, like what's next in your faith journey? What's next for you in your life? What's next? And I, I think that all of us, if we're breathing, have something coming next for us. You know, like you just realize that there's things that you are, you are getting ready to go through. As a matter of fact, I think one of my favorite things about the God that we follow is he doesn't abandon us to the moment, but prepares us for what's coming next. I can tell you story after story about that in, in my life and the life of others. And, and the scriptures fill with stories about people who are getting ready for what's next in your life. And this is true definitely for Joshua and the people of Israel. But this morning, this, the, the, the idea is returning to God. And, and I was thinking about that and wondering, you know, what would it look like if, if going to God looked like going back? Like, what if what was next for you was going home? The Bible is full of stories of people who go back home. Go back home. It's interesting. I remember, and I don't know if you've had this experience, but in my own life, One of my favorite things to do, well, not favorite things to do, but one of the things that happens as you grow, age, become older, is uh, you go back to places you were when you were a kid. How many of you are still kids? Thank you. All right, a few of you. Thanks, Brittany, I like it. You're so consistent in that. Yeah, good. Berkner, thank you, brother. Uh, That's right. But, you know, like really a kid, you're a kid, you know, we just dismiss all our blast students. What's amazing is a lot of times, if you go back to something that you experienced when you were a little child, it seems like everything is smaller, doesn't it? Like you go back, you ever gone back to like your elementary school, walked around, and you're like, these, uh, one of my favorite things we did, well, not favorite, we went to this place where um, we were doing this prayer group meeting at this kind of youth conference thing, and there was this bathroom with this super tiny toilet, which was really funny because we all stood next to it for pictures because it was so funny. It was a super tiny toilet. It was like a whole like real super tiny toilet. I was impressed. But I thought, if you went back, you would be like, I'm so much bigger than that now. I know when I went back to my own elementary school, I felt like, oh my gosh, I'm, this was so big, and it's tiny. Maybe some of you have gone back to your, maybe some of you have gone back to your room at home. You spent your whole life there, and you go back, and you see that like eight by 10 space that you had all of your stuff in. You're like, that's tiny. But what if it was, the opposite was true? What if you went back to something that you had left and it was so much bigger than you could imagine? That's much more like the story of returning to God. For many people, when you return, it's not that you've you've grown so much, you're so much bigger, but it's that you realize that God is so much beyond what you could have imagined to begin with. For many of us, we grew up in the faith and then left. The story of returning to God is a story of a journey where when you show up, he's so much bigger than you could have imagined. Well, that's kind of what the story is like today. And if we've not caught it yet from Joshua, it's pretty clear in the text today that, that God is way bigger than the Israelites could have imagined. His plans are much larger than they could have ever dreamed. And so today I'm going to ask you to do what we always do. I'm going to say this as a full disclaimer. I say this all the time. But we invite God to speak to us because none of us have wisdom of ourselves. 
We, we sang that song earlier about Jesus. You know, Jesus is so awesome. And knowing Christ means you have the Holy Spirit living in you. If you believe in Jesus as your Savior, the Spirit of God dwells in you. You are his house. And that, that means that you can have wisdom, understanding. You can, you can know God fully through the Holy Spirit. And so today, that's what we're going to do. We're going to pray that God would intervene, that he would teach us today as we open his word as we open our hearts. So please join me, if you would, and pray. Father God, today we've come into your house seeking you. We don't want false stuff. We don't want people stuff. We don't want the broken, flawed, screwed up, sinful world that we're part of because we just know that. We, we, we spend too much time here, Father. I, I pray that today your spirit would dwell in us more profoundly. Not that you aren't here, but that we would recognize you more clearly that we would cling to you more readily, that we would maybe, maybe set aside all of our inhibition or all of our angst or all of our own misguided understandings and seek your wisdom today. May you inspire your word to teach your people. May you help us to know it, to, to know it fully in our hearts and in our minds and our lives and that we might live it out faithfully as followers of yours people made in the image of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. So today we ask for that ridiculously huge prayer because you are so faithful to deliver your people. And we trust you with that deliverance. We trust you for your teaching and all that you will do. In Christ's name, amen. I love that, I love that we can read Scripture and I love that you can open it and understand it because of God's promise to you, to me. Well, that's what we're going to do today. We're going to jump in here into Joshua. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn it to Joshua chapter 5. If you didn't have your Bible today, you can grab one of ours. If you don't own a Bible of your own, you are welcome to take ours home with you, and we will get more. We would love for you to have a Bible of your own to read at your discretion. So please do that. All right, here, we're going to jump in here, starting in verse 2. We left off right here last week, and we're just going to kind of start talking. This is a fun text today. I'm super excited. It says this, At that time, the Lord, that's Yahweh, said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. Did I tell you it's going to be a fun text today? <laughs> like, wait a minute. Are you awake yet? Listen to what it says. It says, the Lord, Yahweh, said to Joshua, this new young male leader of his people, make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at, Gil at Gibbeth Haraloth or something. I would forget that name if I were the Israelites, but they remember. Um, of course they do. Circumcise the Israelites again. When I, when I first read that, I thought, oh, man. Like, I hear some babies today. Let me just say this. If you've been through childbirth and you have a male son, you know the most crazy scream you will ever, unfortunately, hear is if your child is circumcised. They took our child, our son, and they wheeled him away. And we thought, oh, they know, and they didn't get far enough. They didn't get far enough away. 
And our precious, beautiful, wonderful, we're so glad you're here, weeping God is good, begins to scream like, stop it! And and I, okay, now here's my, you know, just silently weeping, you know, and I'm like, oh! Is this necessary? On wholly other levels, we're affected. Circumcise all those again. I thought, man, what is God doing here with his people? You remember the story we've told so far has been a story of deliverance of God's promises, of the good stuff, of all the things. And he said, sanctify yourselves, prepare yourselves, because I will do great work among you. But here they stop over the Jordan, outside of Jericho, and before they go to battle, he says, make a flint knife and circumcise Israel. Well, in case you're wondering, and this is the beautiful thing, because God knew when he wrote this down, he's like, they're going to have a problem with this. He said this, verse 4, now this is why he did so. All those who came out of Egypt, all the men of military age, died in the desert on their way to Egypt, on the way leaving Egypt. Don't miss this. All the men who were old enough to fight for the Lord, who were of military age in Israel, had died in the desert. We told that story. They didn't make it. All the people that came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the desert during the journey from Egypt had, listen to the word, not. Had not. There's a lot happening. Verse 6, the Israelites had moved about in the desert for 40 years until all the men who were of military age when they left Egypt had died since they had not obeyed the Lord. For the Lord had sworn to them that they would not see the land that he had solemnly promised their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. And so he raised up their sons in their place. And these were the ones that Joshua circumcised. Catch that in verse 7. Those are the ones. Now, they were still uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. And after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in a camp until they had all healed. There's a lot happening in the story of the Israelites. But here's here's this picture. The people of God had followed God out of slavery. He had moved in a generation so powerfully that who could forget? And they were remembering him, right? This was what they were called to do. Teach your children, remember the things that I've showed you. Never forget your God. And they had gone into the desert and they began to just question, you know, and they were frustrated and they felt like they were totally lost and they gave up. And you know how you can tell they gave up on God's deliverance? Because they did not teach the next generation to obey. They didn't. They gave it up. And so here, before the people, and it's interesting because it says he, he circumcised them again, but it means his people again, returning to God, coming back to him. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but I'm super jazzed to see God do cool stuff in my life. Last week, we talked about the Jordan being cut off up at Adam. I was like, that's the God I know, man. He makes this wide path for us to go through. He's like magnificent, huge beyond compare. And here the same God says, now, now be ready to be my people. See, the reality is that these people who are going into Egypt were going to fight for God. 
And this is the first thing that I realized from this text is that God wants warriors. He wants warriors. Let me walk this out for you for a minute. These guys who had faithfully followed Jesus, or, or, or Yahweh, they had faithfully followed Joshua, they had faithfully followed Moses, and they're on mission with God. But he wants warriors. And he says to Joshua's commander, now you make a flint knife and circumcise my people. I don't know. I don't know, you know, I'd be looking back at that Jordan thinking, oh, that was cool, but this is, this is going to be unpleasant, right? I'm not trying to be, like, weird here. I, this is real. These were real men and, not women, but real men. <laughs> real women following God, too. But real men. This is not what you want to do. This isn't, this isn't the pregame routine. He says, get ready. I'm serious. You're my people. And are you, and I want you to hear this. They had a choice. Are you ready to do hard things for God? Are you ready to lose some things in your life that you don't need anymore? Are you ready to recommit to following God? This is the question. And these men, I tell you what, they could be ready to, you know, fight to the death. You're ready for a lot of things, but this is a very hard thing for a man to deal with. I don't know. Is entering the promised land worth it? They had a choice. Just like Rahab, they had a choice. Are you going to believe God for his promises or not? Well, you know that what it says is that he went through and he, 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 he circumcised all these guys. He did exactly what God commanded. I, I think I want you to see three things here. And the first is this, that God, and this is still true today, church, so don't get this wrong. Like, well, that was then, but now we got Jesus and it's all easy. He is looking for serious followers. He's looking for people who really want to know him, who really want to pursue him, who will, who will do anything to stay with him. We sang that song today, and it comes right from the scripture. Where else will we go? Peter says that when he says, will you leave me too? And he goes, Jesus, where else will we go? You have the words of life. And then God asks a hard thing of us, and we start to hedge our bets. I don't know, Lord, if I can do that. He wants serious followers. For these men, this must have seemed like the complete wrong approach to entering battle. They're going to be laid up now, right? I mean, it says they had to go and make a camp to heal. And I'm sure that was a, a, was a horrible experience, being ready. But they made a choice. The second thing, and this comes to it, is they, they were obedient. You know? And that, that's the truth. Like, if, if, you're, if you're in your own life following Jesus and everything's going great and easy and there's no, hard, and there's no hardship at all, well, yeah, man, people come from everywhere. Did you see the miracles Jesus did? Like people just came out of the bushes. They're like, oh, we love this guy. He's feeding us. He don't ask us for nothing. It's just fantastic. But the minute Jesus started saying hard things like, oh, yeah, by the way, love your enemies. By the way, if someone asks you for your coat, give them your hat. If they, if, they want your, if they want you to walk with them, walk with them twice as long as they desire you to. He started saying these things that people were like, and he said, you know what? If you want to live, you're going to have to die. Because your life isn't about you. If you want to truly live for me, 
You're going to have to stop all the things that you want and want what I want. And it cleared the room. People are like, man, I can't, I can't do that. And those are, that's the place where Jesus says, Peter, are you going to leave me too? I said, where else would we go, Lord? These men were obedient followers of God. They believed him for the promise, and they renewed their promises to God. They recommitted. And then this is the third thing I want you to see from this text, and I want you to see where it comes. It comes in verse 7, is this. God is going to change everything. God is going to find faithful followers. The only question is, will you be one of them or not? You see, God is going to work in the generations. Those fathers in the desert who had given up on God, they had been disobedient to him. They didn't think he could pull it off anymore. They thought Moses had lost his mind. They had checked out on the process and they hadn't even taught their children. I, I was shocked whenever I read in Deuteronomy, there's a song in Deuteronomy that Moses teaches to the people and it says this, that teach this song to your children because whenever you disobey me, they'll remember this song and know that I'm God. In the promised land. That God is going to change generations. And here's the truth, with or without you. So I, I'm, I'm convinced that we get this. We think, oh, well, you know, man, if we don't do something, boy, this ball's going to get dropped. And, and, and God's like, no, I want warriors, but I'm doing this. This is me. You can see it right there. The word says, in verse 7, so he raised up their sons in their place. I mean, that, that should haunt you a little bit, you know. I've heard these stories of men who have come from faithless families, faithless families. They would say things like, nobody, my parents didn't believe, my grandparents didn't believe, and they come to faith in Christ. And then after a while, you know the irony is, I know the, they go, you know what I found out? My great-great-granddad was a preacher. My, my great-grandmother was a missionary. And I was raised in a faithless home. We shouldn't be surprised. In verse 7, it says, He raised up their sons in their place. I don't know about you, but I want to be part of God's work. Like for all the fear and all the questions and all the not knowing what's coming next and the sacrifice, I don't want to be left out of that. I don't want God to say about my life, you need to work around me instead of through me. The last thing I want to say here about this is there's a gender thing happening here, right? God desires men, fighting men, you know? And it's not that he doesn't desire women, he does. But you know, if you look around like, we have a lot of women. Praise God here, we have a lot of men here as well, family Bible church. But you know, it's not always like that. A lot of times in your home, the, 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 the mother is the faith leader. But God desires warriors who are ready to take him seriously, who are ready to do what it takes to follow, who are going to raise up their children to be ready to follow God. The 33 series I was really excited about because when they're talking about, they're talking about reaching a generation of men, you know, The truth is that we all need people fighting with us. But I get re I'm, I'm just really excited about the idea of calling men out. 
to step up, you know? Like, and by the way, like these weren't like, these were men. They were, these guys weren't like, you know, kind of checking out. And I'm not trying to say they were, they, they were all, they were just, they were males. You know what I mean? But they were ready to go to war for God. They were ready to do what he asked them to do. They were ready to follow him into the promised land. And God changed them in this place called Gilgal. The question I have is, where are the fighting men in your life? Like, God wants warriors too, so this doesn't leave women out. Women fight, man. I tell you what, the strong, some of the strongest people I know are women. They, like, like I tell you, childbirth earlier, whew, like, they're warriors. You know what I mean? Have you been there? It's, that's why God gave them that job. Um, well, I was cringing. Uh, but, but, you know, where are those people who are fighting in your life? And I'll say men is like, you know, people. But where are they at? Here's another question for you. I want to take a little side here. I know many of you are here and you have a burden for a man in your life that's not here. I've talked to so many of you and you say, man, I just wish so-and-so. My son, my husband, my father, you know, my uncle. What can you do? What could you do to encourage them to step out? Like, what would, it, what would it take, you know, to be real with them and say, you know, yeah, you're right. They say things about the church, the way things are. You go, yeah, you're right, man. That's how it is. How, how do you think it should be different? What would it look like if you followed God? It could be different. I feel like our job is to encourage one another in, the, in our walk with Christ, but to call each other out. Where are we fighting? Where are we fighting well? All right, so they rested there, verse 8. Here we go, verse 9. Then the Lord Yahweh said to Joshua, listen to what he says, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the place has been called Gilgal to this day. Gilgal means roll, right? I rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you, God says. Reading on, verse 10. On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal, that's where they're still at, they're still recovering, on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. Here it is again, right? The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. You know that there's like been in the desert a long time. And here, for the first time, they celebrate Passover in the Promised Land. They are across the Jordan. They are on the threshold of Jericho. And here, at God's appointed time, they celebrate the Passover. You'll remember the Passover is the feast of deliverance from Egypt when God said, let my people go. And here they're having this kind of celebratory meal. But for the first time in 40 years, they're eating from the fruit of the land. I don't know. I wonder after this experience of recommitting to God, of, of, of being re-sanctified, re-prepared for being followers of His, what must that have tasted like? You know, the Word says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. But they've been eating in the desert this fast food like for 40 years. Like it, it, it really was. If you don't know what, what manna was, manna was stuff that showed up in the morning, but you couldn't keep it a day because it would be spoiled, you know? Like you couldn't eat it the next day. It was nasty. 
But, but they had eaten it for 40 years. Every day they eat it, except on the Sabbath when they had twice as much. And it would last one day and they would eat it. But that was it. And so they had this really basic, bland diet. It was, it was nothing that anyone wanted. That was part of the complaining was about. But here they are in the promised land. And for the first time, they have roasted grain. They have unleavened bread. And can you imagine? I mean, is anybody a foodie in here? Does anyone like food, like to eat? Yeah, the rest of you are lying because I've been here long enough to know you all like to eat. You know, we did the couples thing Friday night. Man, the food was phenomenal, right? Can you imagine after eating the same kind of like Play-Doh textured, I don't know, I've heard it's like maybe some mushroom type stuff or some kind of odd like temporary veggie, something God did with this man and they're just like, oh yeah, thank you for this food, you know. They, they, they were like, oh. It's so good. Oh, this is so much better than we could have imagined. These guys were born in the desert. They had never had real food. And the first Passover, when they gathered at the table, they said, remember when God delivered us from the slaveholders? Remember whenever he told the Pharaoh, the mighty, powerful Pharaoh, let my people go? And then we broke bread. And we thank God for it. And we ate. Oh, it's so good. I had forgotten how good the Lord is. Well, this is their experience of this Passover feast. They eat that time for the first time in the promised land. I don't know. I don't know if we can imagine how, how good it must have tasted to the lips. Verse 12. This is amazing. Right? The manna stopped that very day. They ate the food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year they ate from the produce of Canaan. There was no more of the manna that was fed to them for 40 years in the desert. It was gone. And they had the fruit of the earth, the real deal. All their waiting had paid off. I want to make a point of this because here's the truth, and I don't want us to miss this, but God always sustains his people. He always sustains his people. And, and you and I have desert experiences of our life where things get hard and dry, and, and you get you eating stuff you don't even like anymore. You're like, this don't even taste good, you know? But God delivered his people from the desert, not just from the slaveholders, but from themselves, not just from Egypt, but from their own faithlessness. He delivered them, and he sustained them. And as they ate that first meal, how must it have tasted to receive this great gift from God? I think it's funny that um, the manna stopped. And, and, I, and I already probably expressed to you this morning, but I can tell you how I feel about that. I'd be like, thank God that's over. Have you ever felt that way about something? Right? I mean, what, whatever it is, you know, sometimes it's like, you know, having little kids and they're like, they're, you know, poopy diapers and stuff. And then you don't have any diapers anymore. And you look at your wife, your husband, and you go, man, Thank God that's, I went back to nursery this morning and somebody was poopy back there, you know what I'm saying? And I went over and I said, thank God that's over, you know? 
by the way, years and years of training taught me to run away. <laughs> Just run away. Thank God. Maybe you've had a job. You had a job. Maybe you have a job right now that you just hate. You hate it. You're so sick of it. You're like, oh, God, I'm so sick of this job. You know what I mean? And, and, and you can't wait till the day you can say, thank God that's over. Maybe you're in school. You're so sick of it. You got senioritis, man. You're done. You're out. You're checking out. You, you can't stand the thought of it. And you can't wait till you can say, thank God that's over. I wonder, do you ever say, thank God that that was there. Thank God that you, you brought me through that. Thank God for that really hard thing in, in my life or that, that trauma I went through or that, that marriage problem that I've had or, or that issue with my parents. God, you are so faithful to us. Thank you. Thank you for sustaining us. You know, part of us looking back in our lives shouldn't just be about looking back and saying, thank God that's over. But thank God for what you did. Thank God for the way you moved. Thank God for that nasty, doughy, mushroomy manna. Because none of us died in the desert. It's a different perspective, isn't it? The question that I have for you in your life is this. Do you even recognize God for his faithful provision? Right now. I know because it's easy to see, man, this is so hard right now. But do you even thank God for his sustaining of you? For the way he faithfully provides for his people. The way that his plans do not fail. Here we go, verse 13. Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, right? They're healed up at the camp. He looked up and he saw standing in front of him a man with a sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or our enemies? That's a great question to ask. And you see a guy standing there with a sword drawn out. You know what I mean? Joshua's like, hey, hey, who are you fighting for? Right? Check it out. Verse 14. Neither, he replied. The word actually says not. <laughs> not. You know, you fighting for us or them? He's like, not. But as commander of the army of Yahweh, I have now come. Look what the word says. Then Joshua fell down on the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? 15. The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place that you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so kind of the third movement of this as we enter into Jericho. Next week is Jericho. But before we get there, Joshua has his men ready for battle. He's done this incredible thing with circumcising the Israelites, you know, men of fighting age. And, and then he sees this guy and he goes over and he says, who are you fighting for? Because you can tell he's concerned. Are you on our side? Are you fighting for the enemy? And this is what his response equates to is that God fights for his own holiness. He says, neither, neither, Joshua. What, what does that mean? You read that, you go, what do you mean neither? Are you not fighting? Well, of course he's fighting. He has a sword out. He's ready for battle. Who is he fighting for? Yahweh. The host of the Lord is what it says. The, lead, the, 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 um, the many people of God. Who, who is he fighting for? What's even more interesting than that, though, 
is that he's the chief. He's the head guy. He's the guy in charge of the battle. And he says, I'm fighting for neither one. Which implies that he's fighting for God. You know, sometimes I told you earlier, there's some things that Jesus teaches that are really hard, like love your enemies. Some of you people are so passionate about sports, you pray for your team, don't you? God, just let us win this one. They can take the loss. You know what I mean? Whose side are you? I remember when we won the Super Bowl in St. Louis and Kurt Warner was quarterback. I was a believer, which was amazing. And it was just like, it was, just, it was like rapture. You know what I mean? Like, you can't stop us. God's on our side. The Pope had come to town for heaven's sake. Do you remember this? You people were fighting a losing battle. God's on our side. God says, neither. Neither. I fight for my own glory. I'm here to proclaim my kingdom. And then Jesus says, love your enemies. Give your stuff away. And follow me. That's different. Well, I love what happens, and I want you to see it, you see, because Joshua comes and asks the question, and then this commander of the Lord's army, by the way, this is interesting because there's no place I could find where someone falls down and worships anyone but God himself. And Joshua, the word says, goes face down like that. He just drops. This is the man that God said, you will lead my people. And when he meets this chief of the army of God, he falls flat on his face. But not only that, you, my word, the, the translation I read says, he, in reverence, you know what the word means? He worshiped him. He worshiped him. He fell at his feet and he worshiped him. Instantly, in a moment, he knew, he recognized God's presence. He knew who was standing before him and he fell down and he worshiped him. Another way this word can be translated as prince. The prince of God was here. In this moment, Joshua recognizes God's presence. And he realizes that he's not ultimately in charge of this. And that even the question of silliness of, are you fighting for us or them? Whose side are you on anyway? And he makes that same decision that Rahab made. You can be with God or against God, Joshua. And Joshua instantly recognizes and does what he does. He falls down on his face and he worships him. He's not rebuked. You'll notice every other time in scripture, if someone worships an angel or worships a person, you know, they would say, don't worship me, I'm not God. This doesn't happen. And then God speaks and says this, Joshua, take off your shoes because the place you are standing is holy. It's holy ground, right? Now, this should sound familiar to you. Moses had this experience, didn't he? Take off your sandals. The place you're standing is holy. It's holy. And Joshua begins to understand that the God that he's following is even bigger than he can imagine. And you know what he does? He takes off his shoes you know, it's funny because even today, 2,000 years later, we have issues with shoes, don't we? Some of you guys don't. I see you guys wearing flip-flops around, but we, we walk around in our shoes, and I thought, man, you know, you say, you know what, take your shoes off because where you're standing is holy today. And you guys would be like, I ain't taking my shoes off, right? What, why would he tell us to do that? What, why would God say that to, to Joshua? Take off your shoes, Joshua. 
There's something about it, you know, that just connects you to what's happening. You take off all your man-made protection, you know, and you feel it. It's holy. You're in his presence. He's the Lord. He's to be worshiped. And you're connected. I think there's something about this. When Joshua worships God and he takes off his shoes and he stands there on the earth that the Lord had provided for him and he is celebrating what God is about to do in the battle. How many times in your life do you do that for God? How many times do you do something that's just like outrageously worshipful and you say, it's for your glory. Here I am, Lord. You go, well, you don't know me, Bill. My feet stink. <laughs> your mama's been telling you that for years. I think your feet stink. Maybe you got your shoes on too much. He's holy. He's present. He's real. And he's calling you to join him. The truth is that God is the one that's worthy of worship. He's the one that's worthy of praise. And here Joshua gets it right. And he falls down and he worships God. I want to wrap up with a few verses of Scripture. And I'm going to share them with you up here. The first is Paul when he writes to the church in Rome. And he's writing about this issue of circumcision, you know, because there's people saying, well, this is what you got to do now. This is what we have to always do this way. And this is what Paul says. And this is where the challenge comes this week. He says, a man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. That's what most of us are worried about. No, a man is a Jew if he's one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of his heart, here's the word, by the Spirit of God, not by a written code. Circumcision of his heart by the Spirit of God. You know what that means? Let me help you understand this. Because it means that God will trim things from your life that you don't need to worship him. And you go, not that, that's, that I need that, Lord, it's, it, I like it. And he's like, yeah, you don't need it to worship me. You don't need it to fight for me. You don't need it to be on my team. A circumcision of the heart, the desires, the loves, the lusts, the things we wish we had. And he says, I'll take all that away from you. In Colossians, he says this, Paul writes and says, in him, Christ, you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with the circumcision done by the hands of men, there it is again, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, listen to it, God made you alive in Christ. And he forgave all of your sins. This is the gospel that we celebrate. Not, not the things that we have to do to be right. Not that we have to line up and have something happen. But that God is working in us to restore us, to save us, to call us back to him. Today I wonder with you, what has to change in my life? to be restored to God. What are those things that keep me from really following him? What needs to be cut away? Thrown out. Not necessary anymore. 
And this, are you even serious about following him? Are you even serious? Please join me in prayer if you would. Father, we've come here into your house to, to meet you, to know you, and to worship you. I pray, Father, that as we've come to, to hear your word, that you would continue to teach us, Lord, in those things in our life, man, that we love, Father, that we say, oh, I, I, I really like this, though. I, I pray, Father, that you would wrestle those from us. That if we don't need them to follow you, they would be cut away. They'd be removed from our life. They'd be ready for the day of battle. And Lord, there are some of us here today and we haven't decided yet whose side we're on, who we're going to worship, and what we're going to do with our life. I pray that today, by the power of your Spirit, we would choose life. That we would choose you. And that we would worship you, maybe for the first time. Forgive us, Lord, for all the times that we've taken you for granted. Forgive us, Father, for the way we've tread all over your promised land, ignorant of your presence. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus, who made all this sin forgiveness possible, who, who removed the burden from us so freely. Father, today... We cry out in his name that you would hear your people and deliver us to what's next in our life. Show us where you'd have us to go. You alone are worthy of worship and praise, and that's why we come here today. We celebrate you, Father, King of kings and Lord of lords. In everything we do, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.